Hey, welcome to the Church on Boulevard Sermons Podcast, an extension of the ministry of Church on Boulevard in Richmond, Virginia. We hope that you'll find your time meaningful and that you'll live life to the fullest as we grow together. Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering, severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee and Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. This is the word of our Lord. Um, my favorite part of the Super Bowl last week. <laughs> my favorite part, honestly, I was thinking about this. I was like, you know what I think I liked the most was hanging out with our family our dear friend Peyton came over and hung out. I invited any of you to come if you wanted to, but nobody else showed up, but I had a lot of snacks ready for everybody. Uh, <laughs> I just realized like, man, nothing really shocks me or surprises me anymore when it comes to media, the Super Bowl. Like I was not like in this zone of, I wonder what commercials are gonna like be really exciting this year. I've just kind of given up on that. I wasn't even critical. Like I knew the halftime show wasn't going to wow me, but I wasn't like critical of it. Sometimes like you act like you don't care, but you're like the like armchair quarterback cynic. I, I thought Usher did a great job. I thought his song segments were a little short. I think where I was critical was I think he could have taken his shirt off a little sooner. <laughs> he was so sweaty. And I know he was just trying to cool off when he did it. His body still looks fantastic at age 46. I think I looked up 46. Okay. <laughs> I was like, man. Oh, it was? Wait, it was a what? And that was one of the bets. I didn't realize that. Well, there you go. Um, I was not surprised when he took his shirt off. Um, I just think that in general, I feel like there's plenty to entertain me. And I think with all of us in our cultural moment, we have plenty to entertain us. We're almost getting entertained to death. Sorry, this is gonna take a little bit of adjusting. There might be some pops. Um, what we do need is more day-to-day, life-on-life, flesh-and-blood relationships. We need this. We need community they put the best people, the best and brightest to design those commercials and they're great, they're awesome. And to design the show and the halftime show and everything, and that's great. But I was thinking back on it and I was like, it was great, I loved it. The game was, was good, except I was disappointed in the outcome. But that said, I was like, man, the best part for me was hanging out with our people and being with our people. And, I, and then I started thinking in our culture, doesn't it seem like we can get shoulder to shoulder to watch entertainment together, but there's very few places where we can be face to face and really be in community together. And 
Tim Keller says this, I thought this was great. He says, God's purpose in history, and he's deriving this from the Bible. He says, God's purpose in history is to glorify himself by forging a new humanity, a new community of people who follow and believe in him. So many of us get frustrated with the church because we see the hypocrisy in the church, and that's legitimate. But the church is going to be full of hypocrites because we're never gonna perfectly follow Jesus. So that's gonna be a perennial problem. But, but, what we do have the opportunity to do is we do have the opportunity to grow together as a gospel-shaped community so that we aren't just coming together and doing what we normally would do with our culture, which is just be entertained, but to really learn from Jesus, to be with him, to become like him, and then eventually to do what he did. Did you realize that God's purpose in history was to create a community for himself? Did you know that that's what the Old Testament's all about? That's why Abraham gets called because his family then becomes the progenitors all the way leading up to, as we've seen in the beginning of the gospel of Matthew, Jesus and his family. It's all part of one family. And we enter into that. We get grafted in, scripture says. Community is very important. Community and Jesus, they go hand in hand. All right, so 1 Peter 2.9 says this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You, me, were holy. Holy means set apart. Holy means uh, distinct. As a Christian community, we're supposed to have certain principles and ways that we live together that is distinct from the world. The reason that that's so valuable is because then we get to be a vision. Did you know that the church is supposed to be a microcosm of what it means to live under the lordship of Jesus? In other words, anybody out in the community should be able to look at the church, not our gathering on Sundays, though that's part of it, but just in general and say, oh, that's what, the, uh, that's what God's community is supposed to look like. That's the whole purpose of the thing is to be able to see a city on a hill is the analogy used in scripture, a light shining in the darkness. You can't share God with the world apart from community. And a lot of us feel that. A lot of us feel like we've tried to do our faith in isolation and even our faith fails in isolation. <laughs> like the more you spend away from the church or just doing online church, the more you feel disconnected and cynical and bitter. It's just not the same as being together. It's like watching the Super Bowl and so what? What are you gonna do with watching church? But being the church, there's like, there's stakes, there's blood, there's flesh, there's living life together. So that's how we're changed by the gospel, to be a holy nation, a set apart people. That's what holy nation means. But Peter also says a royal priesthood. There'd be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're not just distinct from the world. Priests were moderators. They, they, they spoke on behalf of the people before God. They brought the people to God. What we're supposed to be is not just a community that resembles Christ and is distinct. We're supposed to get in the world, to engage with the suffering of the world, to engage with the hurt in the world, to be like priests that bring the people to God. That's the whole point of everything that we're doing. Not just to work on ourselves so that we look like a perfect community and then hope that people come to us, but to be out in the world to be distinct from yet exist for, to be distinct from the world yet exist for the world. Your life will be best lived 
if you pour yourself out for the sake of others. Now that is a lot of spiritual maturity. It takes a lot of spiritual maturity to get to that point because we have to go through a stage of maturation where we care more about ourselves than others and we go into the inward journey and we learn how God breaks us open with his love and then trains us and gives us the power to look outward and care for other people. But do you want to become the type of person that at the end of your life, you've invested more in other people and what you're leaving behind is a legacy of humanity or do you want to leave behind a lot of wealth and a lot of things or maybe a good role in the office? Uh, David Brooks, who writes for The Atlantic, he calls these eulogy virtues. There's professional virtues of like productivity and the things you're good at, but eulogy virtues are what people say. Like, could you, ima- could you imagine at your funeral if somebody stood up and was like, she had great teeth. He had wonderful abs. Those are the values of daily life that often we live by, if we're being honest. But eulogy virtues are who's kind, who's caring, who's compassionate, who's generous. That's what we're really living for. And how do we get there? What we see in Matthew 4 is that we get this early snapshot of the community that's starting to gather around Jesus. And it's not the best and brightest religious folks. Jesus doesn't ostracize them, but they're not the ones that are really immediately drawn to him. It's the desperate, sick, wounded, hurt, I don't want to prop them up necessarily either because a lot of these people are going to eventually leave Jesus. So this isn't the picture of ideal community, but I think it gets us moving in the right direction. And that's why today, I think because we're an early church um, in the early part of planting a church, we need to hear what are the types of things that make a community of Jesus followers distinct from and existing for the world. And I think we get a good picture of that in this text. They are distinct because they know they're wounded. And they exist for because they go and get more wounded and bring them back to the healer. Dale Bruner says this passage shows us that the early church movement was all about being wounded healers together. A community of wounded healers. Wounded healers, I've learned, is like a pop psychology term. Like if you just type it in Google, tons of articles pop up about what it means to be a wounded healer. You can kind of think just on that phrase what it means. It means you have your own wounds in life, and you allow your story to help others. But Christians go a step further. Christians go a step further because they actually have the power from Jesus to not just use their story of wounding to help others, but to enter into the wounding of the world. Because that's what Jesus did, and that's what he gives us power to do. Don't just let the pain from your story become something that helps somebody else. That's wonderful, but you're gonna still get self-righteous and curmudgeon if you do that. Enter into the wounding of the world and let the world break you open to God's love for you to the point where you feel so desperate looking out at the world that you can only turn to God to help you and help everybody else. And once you get to that place, then you're getting much closer to being a wounded healer. Look, notice that um, in verses 23 and 24, Matthew tells us, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. We got three verbs there. Jesus was teaching, preaching, and healing. People brought him all the sick, 
those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. The wounded, the sick, afflicted people, that's who's brought to Jesus when he's teaching, preaching, and healing. Now, there's something really incredible, I think, going on here, because those verbs are pulled together a lot by Matthew, a lot through the New Testament to refer to Jesus. Teaching, that's a healing of the mind. It's growing into understanding of the doctrines and theology of the faith, knowing your history and heritage, where you came from. Preaching is a healing of the soul, of the spirit. It's being inspired in the very emotions of your experience of who God is. And then he heals them physically. They are totally wounded. See, when I first started thinking about this text, I was like, oh yeah, there's the wounded people. And then there's the fishermen, which are the disciples. And then there's the people that bring the wounded people. And then what I realized is, but Jesus is teaching, preaching, and healing. He's not just standing around touching people and healing their physical bodies, though he does that. He's also teaching and preaching. This was vital for him. And you know what? This is also the setup for an awesome section of scripture that's famous, the Sermon on the Mount, which is coming next. In the next verse, he's gonna stop and just preach to everybody. Clearly, Jesus says, your physical, I care about your physical body, 100%. I also care about your spiritual well-being. I care about all of you. And a lot of our problems in the church today come from a church that whether we realize it or not, either believes that our bodies are just commodities, meaning we do whatever we want with our bodies, it doesn't matter because then I'll die and go to heaven and I just have a spiritual self. And therefore, whatever I want to do with my body sexually, whatever I want to do with my body um, physically, whatever that I want, I can do because my body belongs to me and it's distinct from my spirit. I'll go pray and have my quiet time with God, but then I don't actually think that like my joints are moving because of the very breath of God. That's so interesting to me. We live a disconnected life. They used to call this Gnosticism back in the day. And, and there's also people who on the flip side of that, and this tends to be in the conservative evangelical side of the church, the body is bad and gross. Again, separating the body from the spirit and soul. Again, not what Jesus did. So in that point of view, you don't have sex. You don't do drugs. You don't do anything with your body that could be harmful because mainly because you don't want to indulge in any of the physical pleasures. And you're still being ruled by this separation between body and soul. But what we see in Jesus is it's all integrated. You are a soul, Dwayne, and you're also a body. You're a soul and a body. That's very interesting. As we go through our life, we have physical wounds, but we also have spiritual wounds and Jesus tends to all of it. He's sovereign over your genes and your DNA, and he's sovereign over your very spirit, your mental health, emotional health. All of your well-being is in him. And we don't often see that when we look at the church. We don't necessarily see a church that cares for our mental, our emotional, our spiritual, our psychological, our sociological, as well as our physical needs. In this time, when religious leaders would touch sick people, they'd have to abstain from all of their duties for a week to cleanse themselves. They became unpure. In other words, all of the religious leaders of this time, if they even got near sick people, the sick people rubbed off on them and made them impure, made them sick, made them unclean. But Jesus, it's fascinating. 
he can go and touch people and his cleanness goes into them. They're healed. They're made whole. In other words, Jesus then doesn't have to go purify himself. He is the great high priest. He is the one who can take people who are unclean and make them clean. Okay, but here's the next point. If we are gonna be a community of wounded healers, first we have to be wounded in order to be healed, but we also have to acknowledge and admit that we're wounded in order to be healed. And we have to admit that sin infects our mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical selves. And if we see that, that we're wounded totally, then we'll realize that we are desperate, just like these people. Matthew's giving us a picture of what it looks like to be desperate for Jesus. When you're desperate for help and aid, you don't worry about all the proper doctrine. You don't worry about getting everything right. You just go to the guy that can make you well. You get right up close next to him. You don't even worry about whether you're doing everything right. You're just like, he's gonna take care of me. And these are lessons for us. If we wanna be a community of wounded healers, you have to be totally wounded. You have to be willing to admit that. So Mark, um, in his gospel, Mark 2, there's the story of a paralytic. Do you guys know it? The paralytic is dropped in from the roof and Jesus goes over and he heals the guy. Before he heals him though, do you know what he says? He says, your sins are forgiven. Now that is appalling because well, it's appalling and it's humorous. Like, okay, imagine if Andrew sinned against Paige, okay? He hurt her in some way through his own selfishness. And I come up to Paige, I'm sorry, and I come up to Andrew and I say, Andrew, I forgive you your sins. You'd be like, what? Paige has to forgive me. <laughs> you can't forgive me for what I did to Paige. Only God could for forgive general sins. When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, what he's saying is what you've done in your life has actually all been against me. And that's crazy talk. And then he heals the guy. In other words, what is he saying? He's saying your physical healing is gonna be an illustration of what's actually going on on the inside. Our bodies and souls integrated, so important to see that. And in the same way that you wake up with achy joints in the morning, you have an achy soul and an achy breaky heart. <laughs> I don't know, that just came to me, but I thought that was. Have you heard the phrase, thank you. Have you heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people? Okay, so if you're just totally wounded and you have no way to get healing, that phrase, what that means is, out of your own hurt, you're gonna just perpetuate more hurt in the world. How do we get unhurt? <laughs> How do we get healed? Throughout scripture, we see that the real wound of humanity is sin. It starts all the way back in the garden and it has infected everything, our physical, our behavior, our mental, everything. The root of sin is not bad behavior. So a lot of us think that if we just do the right things, God will approve of me, I haven't sinned, I'm okay. I didn't swear or say something mean today, but that's not the root of sin. The root of sin for a Christian, for a wounded healer, if you wanna be a wounded healer, you need to understand that the root of your problem is not whether you said a swear word or not yesterday, or whether you got mad at somebody the other day. It's deeper than that. It goes all the way down to the place where your motives are wrong because you're selfish. You're built towards self. You're bent towards self and not towards God. 
Byung-Chul Han is a, uh, a Chinese-German philosopher. I've quoted him before. He's brilliant. He just released a new book, if anybody's interested in philosophy. He also does a lot of sociology. And he assesses our contemporary culture. He's done a lot of the work. Um, the reason burnout became such a like, colloquial phrase I think is mainly thanks to the work he was doing over a decade ago. So he has a book called The Burnout Society. He has another one called Psychopolitics. And in Psychopolitics, he does something fascinating. He says, in the modern age, we are all told to invent and reinvent ourselves. And he says, we become entrepreneurs of self. And then he connects some dots that I think are really helpful. We are now entrepreneurs of self. We're told to build our own identity, throw off the ties of tradition, throw off everything that culture would tell us to do or our family would tell us to do. Traditional culture is built on, you should do this, you shouldn't do this. Follow the rules, do what your family did, step in line. But modern culture is built on, you can do this, you can be this, you can, you can. And what Han shows us in his book that's masterful, he says, while the traditional society was full of shoulds and shouldn'ts in order to set boundary lines around your selfishness, our modern society enslaves us to can. You're never done perfecting yourself. You can be even more than you think you are. And what's happened is the modern self is being crushed under all the options and possibilities for their life, never feeling like they ever arrive. Because while should and shouldn't became too oppressive, we've actually now become oppressed by can. There are no boundary lines for can. There are boundaries for should and shouldn't. In other words, it deceives us into thinking that we don't even have time for intimacy if we're going to be a true entrepreneur of self. If you're always working on yourself so that you're an entrepreneur of self, then think about it relationships are only beneficial if they get you closer to the identity that you want for yourself. You use people. And Han says, this is the problem in our society and we don't even know it's happening. When we're scrolling through Instagram and all we spend our free time thinking about, Drew, is, oh, I smile. That sounds really cool. I'll put this pink stuff or purple stuff on my teeth and they'll turn like, have you seen this? You put this dye on your teeth. Oh, that's awesome. But I'm spending my time thinking about who? Me. Is that wrong? Is that bad? It has a place. Does it form us over time? Do we have enough things that are slow dripping into our life that are helping us think about others? Do you get a little notification on your phone that says, hey, pray for your spouse right now? Oh, hey, go take a meal to your neighbor today. And meanwhile, and I don't say this in a condemning way, I say it in the sense that like, I, I am in it with you and what happens to me, and so I know it's happening to you too, is my life kind of feels meaningless. Because after a while, I get sort of tired of always working on myself. And so I'm anxious about how I am and how I'm doing. And then I'm like, what's the purpose of life? I just don't feel, I don't feel like my life is big enough for my soul. But wounded healers somehow are able to experience a certain amount of healing so that even though they always will struggle with sin this side of heaven, they don't remain wounded in such a way that they can't turn towards other people and bring them to Jesus. Jesus heals us and he frees us. Look at this. Using Hans' lines, the wonderful news in the modern world is that if Jesus comes to you and you receive his healing, then he turns you to go help others. Look at this word. Um, 
So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick. Who is they? Who is they? Well, presumably we go to the verse before it and we see who is they referring to? The people that were diseased, afflicted among the people that were healed. In other words, Jesus takes us who are wounded and he heals us and then sends us out. We become shaped by the gospel now and we exist for the world. We're distinct though, because we still know our wounds. The church is full of wounded people who know they're sick, who always remind themselves that they're in need. That's the gospel, we're sinners, but they also know they are so valuable to God and so loved that they're rooted in his grace and mercy for their lives. Jesus heals people and then sends them, or they just go to grab more sick people and not heal sick people, although eventually Jesus will give his disciples the power to do that. They're just bringing them back to Jesus, just trying to get closer to Jesus. Suddenly their wounding has a purpose. The entrepreneur of self wounding and suffering is a barrier to your end. It's something you need to get around or avoid at all costs. For a disciple of Jesus, you know that you have to walk through it because your wounding is always for the next person in line. So the Christian disciple doesn't get off the hook. And yet in our Christian communities, how often are we just ignoring our own wounding? Are there areas of your story that you are withholding from God or from community? When you have a wound that heals, you have what? You'll be left with a scar. Is a scar a sign of suffering or is a sign, is a sign of healing? Yeah, it's a sign of suffering and healing. To be a wounded healer, we must recognize that our wounding does have purpose. It's like a scar and we take it out into the world and our scars have stories and they do help people. But ultimately the story is that someone healed us and we wanna get people close to them. A dynamic community of wounded people use their healing to bring healing to the world. And notice that that is a proclamation of the gospel. Teaching, preaching, healing. Being a community together that's invested in one another is a reflection of the gospel. So here's, here's where all of this is headed. It's hard for us in modern times to believe this. I was reading a book last night by Henry Nouwen, and he says, a lot of us don't have enough continuity in life because we're so in the modern moment. We're so trained to just like be in the moment, which isn't bad, but it means that a lot of us don't have a lot of historical access to our lives. Like we don't think about our lives as being in a continuum that's like handed down all the way back to Abraham. We just don't think of ourselves that way because in the modern age, we're taught new, better, move forward, progress. And so we don't have a lot of connection to the past. But when we look back at these stories of Jesus and these people, what we're actually supposed to see is that we hold on to them and we look at Jesus to then see what our future is gonna look like. The reason we have trouble looking into the future for ourselves, honestly, and we feel like life's a wash is because we aren't connected to the past. But when we see Jesus in the past like this, then we can suddenly look at what Jesus is doing and say, you know what? That's a foretaste of heaven. And I get weirded out by that stuff. Honestly, my biggest area of doubt that I still struggle with today is I'm like, eh, what really happens after we die? And then I'm like, well, Jesus told me not to guess about it. So that's gonna give me a lot of anxiety to just try to guess. So I'm just gonna like, I'm gonna leave that be. That's a major area of struggle for me. I want it to be dynamic. I want there to be life after death that 
is exactly what scripture promises. And it's hard for me and my modern self to imagine it. But here we see what community can ultimately look like. That the wounded healers aren't always wounded healers. Eventually they just become the healed that live in perfect harmony with one another. The way we proclaim the gospel right now is by giving people a foretaste of that by walking through suffering together. And you know what you do to do that well? You don't just think about your story and that you need therapy, though you do need to do that. That's very important. You also enter into the wounding of the world. That doesn't mean you just sit and watch the news all the time. But when you do watch the news and you're prone to just take a political side, before you do that, take a human side and just say, God, this is awful. My heart just, let your heart break. And if you cannot handle it, then shut off social media for a while because maybe you've become so desensitized that you don't even know how to access the emotions of entering into other people's woundings. Jesus acted with compassion in this passage. That's one of the greatest characteristics we see of him. Come, passio, with suffering. All throughout scripture, it'll say Jesus looked on them with compassion. With suffering. Jesus suffers with people so that we can suffer with people. The key to being a wounded healer is not to get healed so that you can show people how healed you are. It's to enter into the suffering of the world and let it break you open to how desperately we all need Jesus and then cling to Jesus in it. Maybe we need to have more prayers that are just laments. Most of the Bible is laments. In the Psalms, there's a whole book on lamentations of just people crying out, God, what is going on? Maybe we need more of that. Revelation 22.2 says, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit in each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That word nations, ethnos, is the same word that's used at the end of Matthew when it says, now go into all the nations. When he ultimately gives his disciples the great commission, he sends them out as wounded healers to the nations. The healing of the nations takes place in and through the gospel when it's preached, when it's taught, when it's recorded and obeyed by individuals who are members of a community. Okay, the Bible has a lot of phrases about what it means to live as wounded healers together. People call them the one another passages. I just wanna read a few of them. And while I read them, I just want you to think, do you have a community like this? And not just is there a community that surrounds you with this, but that's really important. Think through that lens, but also think through, do you do this for other people? Have you thrown yourself into community? Because here's what we know from this passage. None of those people are getting back to Jesus without their friends going to get them and carry them. We cannot heal in isolation. We can't know Jesus in isolation. You can only know him through community. So what does it mean to be a community like this? This is the portrait that the gospel or that the Bible gives us of a gospel-shaped wounded healer community. John 13, 34. This command is 16 times in the New Testament. Love one another. Romans 12, be devoted to one another. Have uh, honor for one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Build one another up. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Truth, bring truth, don't hide anything. If you're hurt, Charlie, by something I said, you say, Drew, in love, brother, I gotta let you know, that hurt me, man. Christians know how to have healthy conflict. They should. Care for one another, serve one another, listen to this, bear one another's burdens. 
That also means let people bear your burdens. In our society, it's like hide, hide your burdens. <laughs> Don't show anybody. Forgive one another. You know, the barrier to forgiveness is that we don't recognize how bad our wounding is. Because if you know how bad your wounding is and how desperately you need Jesus, you would be able to easily forgive others. That's why I know none of us understand anything that I've said this morning. Neither do I. <laughs> none of us get it. Because if you got it, you would easily forgive other people. It would be no problem. But we struggle to forgive. Or we think we've forgiven, but we've actually just ignored that person and cut them out of our life. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is laying that wounding before Jesus and letting him do the work for you, entering into it, being honest about it. Have you thrown yourself into community like this? Because what we know about this text is a lot of these people are gonna fall away from Jesus. They're not in community, they're in the crowd. So are you in the crowd or are you in community? And that doesn't mean you just, okay, I gotta just come to church more. Remember, the gospel is not that you behave better. It's that we need to orient, God, why am I not in community? You need to be with Jesus on that one. And then I think you're gonna find very surprising ways that God leads you to go out into the world and be in community. You're gonna find ways that he's calling you to go serve others, to be a part, sure, of Church on Boulevard. That's great. We can be a model community together. But for some of us, it might be called elsewhere. <laughs> the main thing is, are you with Jesus to become like him, to then do what he did. And the only way you're gonna be able to do that is if you throw yourself into community. Jesus has authority over all sickness and wounding. Madeline Engel has this great illustration that I wanna close with. She says, have you ever seen a surgeon coming out of surgery? Has anybody ever seen a surgeon coming out of surgery? Usually some blood, unless they've already cleaned up they would have some blood from doing the healing work. Sweat. She talks about the eyes glistening with a sense of oh, relief and satisfaction. Every time Jesus healed somebody, I believe it cost him something deeply because every healing that he did ultimately points towards the cross. And when he's on the cross, he dies. And Peter tells us in his book that it's by his wounds that we are healed. Jesus is the surgeon that goes into our wounds and it costs him everything to go into the wound, to go into the pain, to deal with it, to address it, so that we might not know why suffering happens in our lives, but we do know this. It's not because God doesn't care. He's gone to the depth of it, and he'll meet us in it. And if we haven't met him there, then we should cry out for it, because you deserve that. Did you know that? You deserve God to meet you there. That's what he believes. He's the one that's going to meet you there. Jesus enters into the deepest wounds of your life. He enters into the deepest wounds of our world and he's crushed to an infinite degree. That's what the cross is. That's what Christians believe. If you follow a God like that, how could you ever be self-righteous to someone else because you've healed and they're not as healed? How could you ever feel self-righteous to another Christian community that's acting like hypocrites? Don't be self-righteous. Go confront them. Have healthy conflict. Have some courage. God's with you. Call them out on their sin. If that's really what you believe and do it with humility, knowing that you're also a wounded person. See, this is a much more complex view of what it means to do life together, but it's what we're called to. 
This is our work. And when Jesus dies on the cross, we're told that he gives us actual power to go do it. It's not just imitating him. Don't go out and be an imitator of Jesus just yet. First be with him, then let him naturally transform you to do the work. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Church on Boulevard Sermons podcast. You can find out more about Church on Boulevard by going to www.churchonblvd.com.